This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon. My name is Margaret Chesney, and I direct the UCSF Osher Center. And it is really my pleasure to introduce today's speaker. Uh, Sanford, or Sandy Newmark, is a clinical professor in the Department of Pediatrics here at the University of California, San Francisco. He is also the head of the Pediatric Integrative Neurodevelopmental Program at the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine, and he specializes in the treatment of autism, ADHD, and other developmental or chronic childhood conditions. He combines in his practice conventional medicine with nutrition, behavioral management, and various complementary modalities. Dr. Newmark has lectured widely on autism and ADHD and has authored three chapters on integrative medicine in, that are, appears in integrative medicine textbooks that focus on um, the treatment of ADHD and autism in children. He's the author of an excellent book uh, for parents, and I can I strongly recommend this, uh, called ADHD Without Drugs, A Guide to the Natural Care of Children with ADHD, which will very soon um, have a new revised edition, which will be published as an e-book. And again, I recommend that. His, his current online presentation on ADHD um, has been available from University of California, or UCTV, and it has had over 4.8 million downloads. So you're in for a treat. Um, it is really my pleasure to introduce Dr. Sanford, or Sandy Newmark. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I think ADHD is extremely important topic, not just because it is now one of the most commonly diagnosed childhood problems, but because I think the way we treat and diagnose ADHD really shows how we see and care for our children in our society. It's kind of a marker for that. So let me get going with the presentation. I will be happy to answer questions at the end, but uh, we'll do it then. So here's the... Um, Here's the numbers of psychostimulant use and things like Ritalin in the United States. I gave this lecture a few years ago, and it said, why do 2.7 million children need Ritalin? Now it's 4.2 million. I was kind of hoping three years ago that this would have tapered off, but it did not. This is how it looks on a graph, and you can see how stunning the increase in the use of psychostimulants and the diagnosis of ADHD is. In 2012, we found out that 11% of children and almost 20% of high school boys have received the diagnosis of ADHD. This is a 16% increase since 2007 and a 41% increase since 2003, essentially less than 10 years. Interestingly, in Medicaid patients, or what we call Medi-Cal here in California, it's even 33% higher than that. So what's going on? Are there really this many more kids with ADHD, or are we just diagnosing it more? That's the big question, isn't it? Let's take a breath, though, and go back and say, well, what is ADHD? So ADHD is what we call a neurobehavioral disorder, behavioral issues that seem to stem from the brain or neurological system. And it has some combination of genetic and environmental causes. 
And it's characterized by some combination of inattention or difficulty focusing, hyperactivity, and impulsivity. Now there's also now an inattention subtype of ADHD where you don't have to have the hyperactivity at all, just the impulsivity. So this is the definition from what's called the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the Bible of Psychiatric Disorders. So some symptoms have to be present before the age of 12. It used to be before the age of 7. That was just changed this year. And some impact from the symptoms must be present in two or more settings. This is really, really important. If, some, if a child is only having problems at school or only having problems at home, you really need to look carefully at what's going on because it, it does not fit the diagnosis of ADHD. It's interesting, in the DSM-5, they also changed impairment to impact, which is a little puzzling to me. It's as if they thought we were missing too many people and we had to diagnose even more kids with ADHD than we were. But that's what they did. Because impact is a lot different, isn't it? I mean, you could have impact if your grades go from an A to a B plus because you don't have a really perfect attention. That's a little different. You wouldn't really say a B plus average is impairment. So this, if people actually paid attention, which they don't that much, um, this would really kind of open the floodgates for even more diagnosis of ADHD. What about the genetics? Well, it's highly genetically influenced. It's, we call a heritability of 77%. And this is very clear when I see child after child in, for ADHD, usually mom or dad or somebody, maybe just uncle, will say, well, yeah, I was like that as a kid, or now I have a diagnosis of ADHD. Very, very common. But there's no specific gene. There's lots of genes that have been associated with ADHD, but even those account for only a small percentage. So gene therapy and Analyzing genes to find out why a child has ADHD is way off on the horizon. And the other thing it's important to realize is, is that we know now that even if you have a set of genes, the environment, and by that I mean the environment from the time of conception, all through pregnancy, all through infancy, really will determine how those genes are expressed. In other words, how those genes change who you are. So even if you have genes which might predispose you to ADHD symptoms, a lot of what might happen in your fetal life and in early life will change whether those and how those genes are expressed. That's all called epigenetics. So how do you really make a diagnosis of ADHD? Well, as in many things in pediatrics, it's history, history, history. That's how we do it, by talking talking to parents, talking to teachers, talking to children, talking to anybody who's evaluated these children. Uh, brain imaging and laboratory testing is not recommended or necessary to make the diagnosis. Now, sometimes psychological or neuropsych testing can be very, very helpful, but it, it's not always necessary. So, back to the question. Are there more kids with ADHD or are we just diagnosing it more? So here's the, what I think are the only four possible reasons for this epidemic in the diagnosis. One, there's the same number of kids with ADHD as there always well, but were, but we're just better at finding them. Two, we've loosened the definition so as to include more children. 
Three, we're actually misdiagnosing children who don't have ADHD by any definition. And four, more kids actually have ADHD. I think the answer is a combination of all four of those things, and I'll tell you why. But first, I think this is a very important slide in how we conceive of ADHD. Every trait of ADHD exists along a continuum. So it's not like you either are quiet or you're active or you're focused or you're distractible. People, normal people, exist along a continuum. Some people are really careful and some people are kind of impulsive. And some people are very quiet and some people are active. And if you're over here and on the quiet side and focused and careful, you don't have any tendency towards having ADHD. And if you're way over here where your activity and distractibility and impulsivity are a major problem or really at, at one end of the spectrum, you probably do have ADHD and it's probably a really big problem. And I want to say ADHD is a real syndrome. People have real problems with it and we really need to help many people. However, there's a risk group here, I believe, who in ordinary circumstances would not really have ADHD, but many combinations of circumstances will push them over into the ADHD range. And I want you to kind of keep that in mind as we talk. So we're better at finding these kids. I think this is true. I think if you go back to the 70s or 80s, there were many kids who we thought were the class clowns, acting out, behavior problems, and we just thought they were bad kids. They dropped out. They were, you know, they just were forgotten. And I think we're doing a really good thing by trying to find these kids and help them. Two, we've loosened the definition. I also think this is true. If you talk to really old-time pediatricians, even older than me, they will say that the only kids they used to diagnose were the children who walked into their room or ran into their room and tore up the place. <laughs> they were opening the drawers. They were jumping and down, up and down off the table. They were, you know, they were just wild, uncontrollable, almost all boys. Well, now 90% of the kids I diagnose can sit perfectly still or just fidget a little during the uh, interview. So... We've added the inattentive child as a, as a person who has ADHD. People at preschool were very rarely diagnosed with ADHD in the past, and now it's one of the fastest growing segments of, uh, of kids being diagnosed. So I have parents come to me and they say, well, the preschool teacher says my three-year-old can't sit still for story time. Do they have ADHD? And I'm, really? I mean, since when do three-year-olds have to sit still for story time. We didn't expect people to be able to do that a generation ago, or maybe even 10 years ago. Suddenly this is being demanded, and we think that if people don't sit still for story time, they have a syndrome. Kindergarten has changed dramatically. Kindergarten used to be eat, sleep, play. Now you have to take a test to get into kindergarten. And you have to be able to focus and concentrate well enough in kindergarten to learn to read and write. And if you don't, you're going to be diagnosed with a problem. Well, some kids just aren't ready for that. And I'll show you later some proof of that. So this is a way we've widened the definition by taking kindergartners who are not yet ready to read and, and saying they have ADHD. I think we're just flat out misdiagnosing a lot of people. 
we have inadequate evaluations, we have schools because of testing standards or demanding treatment. Uh, there's a, a really interesting new book called The ADHD Explosion that just came out by one of our own UCSF professors where they showed that in places where teach for the test where no child left behind stuff was implemented, the rate of ADHD went up. So when schools had to, for their own survival, had to have kids pass tests, the rate of ADHD diagnosis went up. We have stressed parents who don't have time to parent because they're working, they have two, family, two working family parents, and they have one-parent families, and when are they going to have the time to work with kids? And we are a pharmaceutical society. For us, a pill is where we want to go. Easy solution. So these are some of the things that can be misdiagnosed as ADHD, and the list is long. Emotional problems like depression or bipolar disease, anxiety. Anxiety is really a big one. Anxious kids can look like they have ADHD. And learning disabilities, we'll talk a little more about that. Learning disabilities are very often misdiagnosed. Gifted children can be really bored and look like they have ADHD. Just intense, difficult kids. Kids who are victims of sexual or physical abuse or even PTSD, kids who have witnessed violence can act like they have ADHD. Kids who have sleep apnea where they can't breathe at night, they're snoring loudly. So it's really important to get a history and see if kids snore and, and act like they can't get their breath at night, that can be the issue. And being young. Born in the wrong month. This is one of my favorite slides in the presentation. So it turns out if you were born in August rather than September, you are more than two and a half times as likely to be diagnosed with ADHD and treated with medication. Why is that? Because you're the youngest kid in the class. This study was repeated in Canada. The exact same thing was found. In Canada, girls who were born in December rather than January are 70% more likely to be treated with medications for ADHD. So apparently, we are just not even distinguishing somebody who's sort of young and immature from somebody who has ADHD. This, the author of this first study estimated it could have caused 900,000 inaccurate diagnoses. They repeated this study in uh, Iceland, and they found that the whole youngest third of the class <laughs> was 50% more likely to be diagnosed and treated with ADHD. So we are just not allowing for normal variations in child's, you know, childhood development. This, is a, this slide shows that you can have learning disabilities by themselves, learning disabilities and ADHD, or just ADHD. And that can be kind of difficult to tease out. So if a second grader is not able to learn to read and write and is, all, and is also kind of uh, hyper and not paying attention, well, is it the learning disability? Is it ADHD? Is it both? And that's where you really need your psychologist to do what we call psychoeducational testing or at a higher level neuropsych testing to try and help figure this out because it's important. Because the treatment for ADHD and the treatment for learning disabilities are, of course, very different. I happen to think that a lot of intense children are misdiagnosed as having ADHD. This is the kid who does what he or she wants to do when he or she wants to do it, 
And that's how it is. The difference between that kid and the kid with ADHD is the intense child, if he or she feels like doing math for three hours, will do it. Or if it feels like sitting down and doing reading or their homework for a few, an hour, will just do it easily, without difficulty. And that's not true of the ADHD kid. So intense children can be easily misdiagnosed because they're not doing the work, and it's easy to say, ah, well, they have ADHD. Here's another kind of uh, demonstration of how inaccurate our diagnosing of ADHD is. This is the percent of kids on medication by state. And notice that there's this dramatic difference between states for no apparent reason. So for example, Indiana right here has a 10% rate of kids on medication, which means almost 20% of their kids are diagnosed. Illinois right here only has a 4% rate. They're right next to each other. There's no plausible biological reason why Indiana should have so many more ADHD kids than Illinois. Thankfully, California here only has 3%, so we're one of the smallest in the nation. How should you do an ADHD evaluation? Well, for me, it's a two-hour thing. We, I make two visits see the patient for an hour, I get some labs, which I'll talk to you about later, and then I do the things you see here. People have various amounts of time they spend, but if, if you're spending less than an hour on evaluating a child with ADHD, you can't be doing a good job. And unfortunately, much of the diagnosis of ADHD is made by pediatricians in the midst of a busy day with a 15-minute schedule. So they might see a patient for 15 minutes, fill out some forms, come back later, see them another for 15 minutes, and now they're on Ritalin. To me, that's inadequate. You can tell that you can't possibly deal with all the factors we've just described in evaluating a child with ADHD in that amount of time. I had a mom tell me the other day she went to see a child psychiatrist, and she introduced the, her boy. He waited in the waiting room, and she went in to talk to the child psychiatrist. Ten minutes into it, he pulled out his pad and said, your child has ADHD, let's start him on this medication. He had never said a word to that child except hello. She walked out of there, but how many times is that actually happening? Here's the fourth reason. Could there be more people with ADHD? Well, the genes haven't changed, but as I showed you, the environment has, and that can change gene expression. Environmental Toxins, electronics, poor nutrition, increased parental stress, all of these could actually cause more people to have ADHD. Here's an example, toxins in umbilical cord blood. So what they did was they took 10 infants from around the country and they checked the umbilical cord blood. This is the blood, this is before they take a breath. This is the blood that their brain has been bathing in from their mother for nine months and they detected an average of 200 industrial chemicals. Of the 287 different ones they detected, 217 are known to be toxic to the brain and nervous system. So it may be no surprise that this could have an effect. We actually have got some research showing that it does. In this study, they looked at just one organochlorine, a pesticide, and they found the higher the level of the pesticide in the, in the umbilical cord blood, the worse the child's development was at 13 months. 
So with hundreds of industrial chemicals whose effects we don't know in the blood, it's not so surprising that there may be an increase in not just ADHD, but learning disabilities and other problems, autism. Here's one study that enlightens this problem. Pesticides, they took 1,139 kids. This is a huge study for medicine. And they just measured the amount of pesticides in their urine, which is, represents pesticides that they ate recently. For the most commonly detected one, the children with higher than average levels had twice the odds of having ADHD. So if they're eating more pesticides, they're more likely to have ADHD. By the way, eating organic helps. People who eat organic fruits and vegetables, the pesticide levels in their urine drop by about 80%. So that's a good thing to do. There's another kind of pollutant. They're called persistent organic pollutants. This is dioxin and other kind of things that come out of smokestacks, industrial smokestacks and you know, factories. ADHD was three times as prevalent in kids who had detectable concentrations of these pollutants in their, in their uh, blood or urine. Learning disabilities were two and a half times as prevalent. Unfortunately, these pollutants are not so easy to avoid as pesticides on vegetables. They're in the air, they're in fat, they're in meat, so doing something about that is more of a societal problem than an individual problem. How about electronics? I keep having to change the slide every time I give the lecture because the number of hours that kids go are on these electronics keeps going up. Right now, the average child spends four hours and a half watching television every single day. And 49 minutes on video games and over an hour and 13 minutes on the computer. For some kids, that may be homework, but a lot of the time, that's video games too. My guess is in California, there's way more video game time than here and less TV time. What I hear from the kids I see is they're is there on video games more than even television, but it's both. But look at that. That is six hours of a child's life doing electronics. How many hours are you awake? You know, these kids sleep 10 to 12 hours. They're awake 12. They eat for three. This is most of their waking hours that they're not in school. And what does that do? We know from studies that increased television watching, increased video games is associated with more ADHD. Well, why would this be? Well, a child who is on these electronics getting constant loud flashing lights and sounds as feedback every five, 10 seconds, this is gonna change how their brain is perceiving things. And how does that same child then pay attention when He's in a quiet class with a teacher talking in a normal voice. There's no bells. There's no whistles. There's no, oh, yeah, you won. You know, this is, um, so it's, it's really difficult. So maybe it's no surprise that with toxin exposure, massive amounts of TV and video games, poor nutrition, which we will get to, and parents who have less time to deal with this all, that more kids have ADHD, or at least symptoms that are like ADHD. And remember that chart again. That child who's over on the, the left-hand side of the chart who has no tendency toward impulsivity and attention problems, they could probably play a lot of video games and eat not very good food and be exposed to chemicals, and they're probably still not going to have ADHD. 
they're okay. But you take that whole risk group and they could really have a problem. So, all these kids have ADHD. Why don't we just treat them all with medication? Why am I here talking to you about an integrative approach? I want to say that medication can be very effective for those kids who truly do have ADHD. And I use them frequently in my practice when I need to. They, and I think they're overused, but they do have their place. So I don't want to act as if nobody should be on ADHD medications. For some kids, they're a lifesaver. About 70% of time, they're effective in the short run. And they can significantly improve school, home, and social success. But they really do have side effects. And what I worry about is long-term studies have not really addressed what happens to a developing brain when these kids are on these medications for 5, 10, 15 years. We just don't know. So these are some of the side effects. The decreased appetite is almost universal. The other ones occur at varying frequencies. I see more subtle effects that worry me, though. Kids who are just not themselves. Yes, they're doing better in school. Yes, they're quieter. Yes, they're getting into less trouble, but it's not my child. She's lost her spark, her joy. And this worries me. Because what are we doing to a, a child when, we're, when this happens, when they're six, seven, or eight, and if we just keep the child on these medications till they're 18? The next question is, I said they are 70% effective in short-term studies, and we have hundreds of short-term studies, right? I mean, the pharmaceutical companies love to do these short-term studies because they're easy and, and quick, and you give a placebo, you give the drug, the kids do better. But what about long-term outcome? I mean, isn't this what we really want to know? We don't want to know how they're doing for three months. We want to know how these kids are going to do. Actually, studies that really randomize treatment groups have not shown really positive effects on outcome. The biggest study, the multimodal treatment study of ADHD, the MTA, they took 579 children, huge study for this kind of thing, and they randomized to either get medication alone, medication plus some behavioral treatment, just behavioral treatment, or whatever happened in the community. And at 14 months, both medication arms were superior. So these kids were doing better, the ones who took medication or medication and behavioral. And everybody was like, okay, we solved the problem. You know, the drug reps were in my office waving their studies around, and okay, we don't have to worry about anything else. Well, a funny thing happened. The randomized part of the trial ended, and they followed these kids along. And by 24 months, only 50% of the positive effect was there. And at 36 months, there is no difference between these groups on any measures whether they're taking medication or they weren't taking medication. And nobody really knows why. Is it because the group sort of intermingled and the ones who were taking stopped, the ones who didn't started? Was it because the medication was no longer effective because people weren't increasing the dose? Did kids develop a resistance to the medication? Nobody really knows, but that's the information we have so far. An interesting sidelight, they followed these kids eight years later because many people who really support the use of medications in children said, these medications are going to keep your ADHD kids from being drug abusers. 
And that was sort of the, the orthodox line for a long time. Well, it turned out that this study and a couple of others show that giving psychostimulants does not change the risk of kids with ADHD becoming substance abusers. Didn't make it worse, as some real major anti-Ritalin groups felt. Didn't make it better. And this has been shown by a couple of studies now. So that's not a good reason to give stimulants. Here's another study where they gave preschool children stimulants, and in the short term they all did great between three and five, and then they looked at them at 10 years old, so at least five years later. 75% of them still had ADHD, which is no big surprise. But as you can see, 79% of them taking medication had ADHD, and 73% of them not taking medication had ADHD, and the symptoms were just as severe whether they're taking medication or not. So again, this long-term study failed to demonstrate a positive outcome. And that's been the case for most of the studies that have been done. So some kids need stimulants, for sure, but many of them don't, even if they're diagnosed. So what's an integrative approach? An integrative approach is that it's important to look at the whole child, not just a set of symptoms they're trying to fix but a child in the context of friends, family, community, school, and to realize that sometimes changing that milieu, that community the child lives in, is more important than any medicine or even any herb or dietary supplement. So what do I do? First of all, I look at nutrition, basic principles. I look at the possibility of food sensitivities, certain nutritional supplements, parenting skills, school and then some alternative therapies. We actually won't even have time today to go over all, all the alternative therapies. There's so much more simpler things you can do. So I'm going to go to food sensitivities first and elimination diets. It turns out that many kids with ADHD are sensitive to certain foods, not allergic. They don't necessarily have food allergies, but they're sensitive. And these foods actually make them more hyper, more impulsive, and less able to focus. In this study, they took 100 children and they put 50 of them on a very strict diet. You can see what it is there. Rice, meat, vegetables, pears, water. How they ever got these families to do it is completely beyond me. <laughs> this was in Belgium. Maybe people are way more cooperative in Belgium than they are here. But, I mean, I, I can't even imagine this strict a diet in, in this country. But anyway, they did it for five weeks. And 78% of the children had a 40% improvement in their ADHD rating scales. That's the kind of improvement you get when you do stimulant trials, when you give Ritalin or something like that. That's, that 40% is what you would expect. So that's really a big study, a big number. Now, the person who assessed them for ADHD was blind and didn't know whether they were, which arm of the study they were in, but the parents and teachers did. So it's not our gold standard double-blind placebo-controlled study that we like in, in medicine. But they do do a second phase, and in this one, it was the double-blind placebo-controlled trial. And they gave foods back to the children who they thought that they were sensitive to, or they gave a placebo they didn't think they were sensitive to. And 19 of 30 kids who got the foods back relapsed. Their ADHD got worse again. And this was in a double-blinded fashion. Now, you might think 
that that's only one study and it doesn't really prove that much, but they've actually repeated this study since the 1980s. Almost the same study in 1985 in the journal Lancet in 1993 in a major pediatric journal. So they've been doing this study over and over, and yet nobody knows anything about it. So here's one of them, 78 children, few foods diet, 59 improved, second placebo-controlled study, same thing happened. They've also done studies. One of the biggest ones is artificial colors, flavors, and preservatives. These things make normal people more hyper, normal children. In this study, a beautifully double-blind placebo-controlled study, kids got a diet without any of those things and then a drink that either had them or didn't have them. The kids who got the drink became more hyperactive. They got the drink with the uh, food colors. That was just normal three-year-olds. They then did another study, and they included eight- and nine-year-olds, and the exact same thing happened. Whether you're hyperactive or not to start with, you got more hyperactive when you got these artificial colors, flavors, and preservatives. In Europe, they take this seriously enough that they put this warning on foods these may have an adverse effect on activity and attention in children. That's what it says on the food. Now, our FDA refused to do that, unfortunately, but they take it very seriously over there. And it's really interesting because Kraft macaroni and cheese here is made with artificial colors. In Europe, they now make it with a natural color because nobody's going to buy it with that warning on it, right? So that's, how, that's the effect it can have. The interesting thing is that with all this research, 99 out of 100 doctors don't ever say anything about this, don't know anything about it. And why is that? Well, the problem is so much of what comes down through research and comes to doctor's office comes through the pharmaceutical companies. That's just an, a fact of how it is. And pharmaceutical companies are certainly not going to talk about this. They are certainly not going to support research to show that, to do more of these studies and show what you can do about it. So it's a real problem in the way research gets done and the way research is presented. So doctors don't do this because they truly mostly don't know about it. They don't know about their research, even though it's published in like the most famous medical journals. Lancet is probably the number one medical journal in the world, pediatrics. But still, they don't read it. They don't find out about it. So what I do, as a general rule, is not quite as strict as what you saw in those studies. I do an elimination diet where people eliminate wheat, dairy, soy, corn, eggs, artificial colors, and flavors. And then you keep those out for about three weeks. And if you see a really positive change in your child, then you start adding them back one by one and see which food it is that causes the problem. Maybe it's gluten, maybe it's dairy, maybe it's corn. By the time you're done, hopefully, it's just one or two things which you can then avoid either completely or mostly depending on the child. So I do this in many, many children with ADHD. And I would say a third to a half of these children have significant to dramatic responses. And my question is, if that's true, why not give any child who's a candidate a chance for that? Wouldn't it be better to avoid a food that's causing ADHD symptoms and have to take drugs for the next 10 years? Medications that can actually really have side effects. 
I find that anybody can respond, but those kids who have allergies, eczema, stomach problems, diarrhea, constipation, those are the kids who are the most likely to respond because they've already got evidence that something is triggering them. And sometimes those kids actually have food allergies as well. Okay, so that's the elimination diet. What about just basic nutrition? When did Pop-Tarts become breakfast? If I were to ask you to remember one thing about children's diets, it would be the glycemic index. How many people know what the glycemic index is? Good, most of you. So it represents how fast a carbohydrate turns into sugar in your body once you eat it. When you eat a carbohydrate, that's what we do with it. That's what they're for. They're for energy. Carbohydrates turn into sugar. If you eat a highly processed carbohydrate, like a Pop-Tart, this gets turned into sugar very, very quickly. And what happens is the blood sugar level goes up, above normal. Your body doesn't like that at all. And you produce insulin and other hormones, and that drops the blood sugar down below normal. And now you're hypoglycemic. And guess what the symptoms of hypoglycemia are? You're irritable, you can't pay attention, and it can look like ADHD. So when you take a Pop-Tart, which is a white flour outside and just a bunch of sugar filling, don't believe that it's fruit, it's not. In a way, you might as well take 15 teaspoons of sugar, put it into a funnel, and just put it down the child's mouth, because it's exactly the same effect. But it's not just Pop-Tarts. What about waffles with syrup? Almost the same thing. When you make a waffle, you have to grind the flour up so highly that it's immediately digested. So it's high on the glycemic index. And then you add a whole bunch of sugar in the form of syrup. And what do you have? That's breakfast. So this is David Ludwig, a very well-known doctor at Children's Hospital in Boston, who says, you eat a higher glycemic breakfast, let's say a bagel with fat-free cream cheese, blood sugar goes up, pretty soon it crashes, and what you're left with at 10 o'clock is a kid with low blood sugar, lots of adrenaline, he's jittery and fidgety and not paying attention. The possibility exists that in children predisposed to ADHD, again, that risk group, quality of diet may have additional impact. So for those kids who are completely on undisposed or not predisposed to ADHD, it may not make any difference. They may do fine in school anyway. But those kids on the other side of the chart, they could have a real problem because of nutrition. Here's a little study where they actually checked it. They gave children high, medium, or low glycemic index diets. The ones who got the low glycemic index breakfast, two or three hours later, they did better. They did better on tests. They did better with their memory. So there's been a couple of few studies on that. We need more, but that's what it looks like. This isn't a study, but this is a very interesting story. So there's a school called Appleton Central Alternative Charter High School in Wisconsin. This was a school where really, really difficult kids were sent. As you can see, truant, psychological and emotional problems, etc. And they just made two interventions. They got rid of the vending machines that had candy and Coke and junk food, and they brought in this outfit called natural ovens to give them a healthy breakfast and lunch. And they were fortunate because these kids all ate breakfast at school, so it was a good experiment. It had dramatic results on these very difficult kids. 
the principal. I can say without hesitation this has changed my job as a principal. We've had zero weapons on campus, zero expulsions, zero premature deaths or suicide, zero drugs or alcohol on campus. Can you imagine how bad the school was to start with? I mean, this is really a tough place. Students' disruptive behavior improved. Health complaints diminished. The teacher said, they're on task. They're attentive. They can pay attention for longer periods of time. So just changing the diet made these dramatic changes in a whole school of kids who had real difficulty. Now, what about nutritional supplements? Well, there's several that I think are important. The big one is omega-3 fatty acids. Omega-3 fatty acids are a type of fat, comes in fish mostly, that are known to be very important for normal brain function. And what's interesting is kids with ADHD have lower levels of omega-3 fatty acids in their blood than kids who don't have ADHD. And we have no idea why. It doesn't seem to be that they eat less. There's no reason to think they would eat less. And in fact, in this study, um, in fact, they actually did one study where they gave adolescents exact same amounts of omega-3 fatty acids in their diet, kids, adolescents with and without ADHD. And when they checked them a while later, the adolescents who had ADHD still had lower levels of omega-3 fatty acids in their diet. So it wasn't how much they were eating. It's something about how kids with ADHD digest or metabolize fish or other omega-3 sources that is different. So there have been a lot of studies of, well, what happens when you give kids with ADHD fish oil or omega-3 fatty acids? Most of these studies were small. Most of them were positive, meaning you saw a good effect, although not all of them were. So what they did was what we call a meta-analysis. That's when the statisticians take all the studies, evaluate them for quality, and put the statistics from all the studies into one big box so it can have more impact. And when they did this meta-analysis, they found that omega-3s were modestly effective in the treatment of ADHD. In fact, about 40% as effective as psychostimulants. Now, that's a pretty big number to me. When you can give something that is inexpensive, very safe, has generally positive health effects, and is 40% as effective as a medication like Ritalin, Seems like kind of a no-brainer. So I have all my children who, take, who have ADHD. I, take, I advise them all to take omega-3 fatty acids. Now, there's a lot of unanswered questions about this because we don't have as many studies as we'd like to. What's the right dose, and how does it vary by age? I wrote down here from you, for you the dose that I recommend. It kind of comes from a lot of the studies that have been done. What are the ideal ratios of the two major fatty acids, which, which is EPA and DHA? I like more EPA than DHA. Are all brands the same? No, I think you need to be careful. And finally, how do you get your kids to take this stuff? It can be difficult. The, um, the one pearl that I will tell you is those little gummies or the little tiny chewable balls of omega-3s, they have almost nothing in them it would take 16 or 20 of those to get my recommended dose of omega-3s, 16 or 20 of a day. So it's a problem. For most little kids who can't take capsules, they need to go to a, a liquid. 
And there's some on the market that are actually pretty decent tasting. Most of the kids will take them, not all of them. It also turns out that iron deficiency can be related to ADHD. When we measure iron in children, you can just get a blood count, and that tells you the amount of iron in the red blood cells. And that's normal in kids with ADHD and by and large. But when we measure their circulating iron, which we measure in something called ferritin, kids with ADHD had half the ferritin levels of kids without ADHD. And many kids with ADHD are actually truly deficient in circulating iron. Most studies did show that, although not all of them. Recently, they actually did MRI studies where you can use MRIs to actually look at how the brain is, is using iron. Amazing. And they found out that kids with ADHD do not metabolize or do not use iron in their brain the same way that kids without ADHD do. So that really confirmed that iron is very important in ADHD. In this little study in 2008, they actually took kids whose ferritin was less than 30. And by the way, that's two-thirds of the kids I check, their ferritin is less than 30. And they treated them for 12 weeks with either iron or a placebo. And two major, the two major ADHD measures that they used, those kids got better. They got better significantly compared to the placebo group. So that was just iron treatment. So I recommend measuring a ferritin level in all of these children. Now, that's not the same as just getting a blood count, because the blood count will look normal. <laughs> Zinc is another one that's been shown to be associated with ADHD, although not quite as strongly. But several studies have shown that low zinc levels can be correlated with ADHD. And this one, they took a, a number of patients who were actually taking Ritalin, and they either, either gave them zinc or a placebo to add to the Ritalin. And, in, and the kids who got the zinc, they did much better on tests. Their ADHD improved more. That's what it looks like on a chart. That's the parent ADHD rating scale, and the black is the kids who got the actual zinc. And that's the teacher scale. So their ADHD symptoms went down. And another interesting study here in the United States Giving 30 milligrams of zinc reduced the amount of stimulants, this is Adderall, that they needed by almost 40%. So that's really a big deal because when kids are taking medication, the side effects are highly related to the dose. So if you can make the dose go from there to there by giving zinc, that would be a great thing. So I think it's worth checking and treating kids who are either deficient or low normal. There's also been several studies about magnesium and ADHD. Um, unfortunately, they're not very good studies. They don't have control group, so it's a little hard to tell. And honestly, most of the kids, almost all of the kids I check here have normal magnesium levels, so I don't do that test anymore here. This is an interesting study where instead of just doing one thing, they gave children with ADHD, 800 children, omega-3s, a particularly good omega-6, magnesium, and zinc, no iron. And they followed them for three months. And they had dramatic improvements in their ADHD. This is their tension. This is their emotional problems. You can see how dramatically it went down. The light gray is girls. The dark is boys. And what I like about this study is it's actually more consistent with how you treat people in the real world. In the real world, you don't just take kids and give them 
one intervention like ferritin or fish oil and you know see them back in six months. You do a few things that make sense at once. Maybe not 20 things, I don't like to do that either. And so this did a few things that makes sense together and they got really good results. The next thing I want to talk about is parenting skills and school interventions. I think this is crucial. For many kids with ADHD, especially the hyperactive kind of oppositional kids, not so much your inattentive, quiet, dreamy boys or girls, but those hyperactive, oppositional, difficult kids, parents are just at their end of their rope. They don't know what to do. The kids are not cooperating, they're not doing well in school, they're arguing all the time, they're throwing temper tantrums, and none of the normal parenting things that they learned are working. They maybe even are doing the same parenting they did on their first child, which worked entirely well and it's not working, or that their friends are doing and they're not working. And they become very frustrated, angry, confused, helpless, guilty, and they end up often in a pattern that worsens things. It's not that their parenting caused the problem, but they end up in a pattern of either yelling at the kid half the time or letting them get away with everything, neither of which is very helpful for any kids, but especially kids with ADHD. So I think helping parents with this is really crucial. And sometimes this is where a really good mental health person, a counselor, a psychologist, can be very, very helpful. But I think they need some kind of system. It's just not, they just don't have the, the wherewithal to just cope with what they're doing. School interventions are also incredibly important. And I want to tell you a story about one school in Tucson where I did most of my professional work. Tolson School in Tucson was a failing school in the lower income part of town. By failing school, I mean the state was there ready to close them up. And the principal of the school found about, out about this one behavioral system, which I'm going to tell you about, called the Nurtured Heart Approach. And she got the entire school to institute the Nurtured Heart Approach. That included teachers, counselors, the principal, the assistant principal, every, everyone. And this approach is an approach based on really, really high amounts of positive feedback combined with very consistent discipline, but given without the discipline being given without energy and intensity. In other words, no yelling, no lecturing, just you broke the rule, here's the consequence. And then right back when that's over to positive feedback. The results of the, in this school were dramatic. Discipline problems dropped sharply. Special education referrals dropped sharply. Suddenly there were only 0.3% of kids in the school were taking medication for ADHD. And it, all of that at the same time, from being a failing school, it became a performing plus school, which in Arizona is a very big deal. I know the principal of that school, and, and when I talked to her recently, she said people were moving in from the high-income parts of Tucson just so their kids could go to this elementary school. Just a simple behavioral modification. This is the approach. It's called the Nurtured Heart Approach. It's all written down in a book called Transforming the Difficult Child. I recommend this to most of my parents who have kids with ADHD. 90% of the families who put this approach into practice find really positive and often dramatic results. How about herbs? 
Well, you know, because I'm an integrative and alternative doctor, I've got to talk about herbs a little bit. But actually, they're not a very big part of my practice, Larry DHD. But there is one thing I like. There's a combination of herbs called valerian and lemon balm. These are both very soothing, relaxing herbs that have been used for thousands of years. And in this one study, they took almost 1,000 kids and who had what they called hyperkinesis, which was the European word for hyperactivity, and sleep problems and restlessness. And the vast majority of the kids who they, who they treated, these, these symptoms actually improved with very few side effects. Valerian is often used for sleep as well, though if you give a smaller dose, it can be calming without causing kids to actually want to go to sleep. The weakness of this study, there wasn't a control group. There was no placebo group. And also, they didn't test focus and concentration. And that's the problem with valerian. It doesn't actually improve focus. It just mellows the kids out some. So I don't use it as a first-line treatment. But it can be really effective for some kids, I find especially in the afternoon when they're kind of decompensating, especially if they've been on medication sometimes when the medication wears off. They get very hyper in the late afternoon, really aggravated. Sometimes valerian lemon balm combination can be really effective. It can be given as a tincture is the, probably the easiest way to give it. There's something called valerian supercomb you can buy in most places that sell these kind of things that has valerian lemon balm and a few other things. You can use it as a tea, but it tastes really bad. <laughs> Here's something that's very interesting to me called EEG neurofeedback. So it turns out that kids with ADHD actually have different brainwave patterns than kids who don't have ADHD. As a general rule, this isn't always true, they have more theta waves, which are your sort of spacing out waves, and less beta waves, which are your focusing waves. In fact, you could you can actually diagnose ADHD fairly accurately by just measuring beta and theta waves. In fact, the FDA this year licensed a test which measures electronic waves from the brain as part of the diagnosis of ADHD. It didn't say you needed to do it or that it was necessary, or, but they said, yes, this could be used. It's licensed. Well, that's pretty interesting, right? But what's even more interesting is that you can teach children to alter these brain waves. Kids can actually alter their own brain waves by using biofeedback techniques. There's, there's been a number of studies about this. There have been some problems with the control groups, but overall, the people who look at this feel that the evidence is pretty strong that this can be effective, that kids can A, change their brain waves, and B, improve their ADHD. So I think it's a really fascinating and interesting way to go because it's got, there's an intuitive way that it makes sense, doesn't it, that, wow, if, you can, if the brain waves are a problem and the kids can change their brain waves, well, that's great. The problem is that it's expensive and time-consuming. There are some cheaper ways to do it coming around, but the ones with the studies, they're looking at 40 or 50 sessions, and it costs a lot of money. And unfortunately, insurance right now tends not to pay for it, although I have seen people get paid for it get it paid for. So it's a really, really interesting field, which I think is up and coming and will be used more and more in the future. There's something called CogMed, which helps kids with ADHD with their working memory, which is often impaired, and that can also be very effective. Um, I'm going to skip through just for 
really quickly through to homeopathy and Chinese medicine just for time, but there's some people use acupuncture and traditional Chinese medicine for ADHD. There's a number of studies out of China about that, but the quality of studies is not very well, uh, is not be able to be well evaluated by us, so it's hard to tell. Same thing with homeopathy, not very many good studies about it, but for some kids, acupuncture or homeopathy can be effective. Also, decreasing electronic media, all these lifestyle things. Decreasing electronic media, yoga or meditation can be helpful. Mindfulness-based stress reduction has actually been shown to help some kids with ADHD, even in a school situation. Hypnotherapy, exercise, I think, is hugely important. Kids with ADHD have to run around. My first piece of advice for hyperactive kids, when they come home from school, get them outside. Get them to do sports. Get them outside doing whatever. Don't just make them sit and do homework the whole rest of the afternoon. Sometimes kids with ADHD don't do well in sports, but they can do well in, in, in team sports, but in individual sports like martial arts or tennis or something, they can do really well. I like martial arts because of the discipline involved. Also, time in nature. Kids who spend time in nature seem to do really well. So ADHD kids especially surprisingly thrive when they're out in nature. This is a really interesting little study where in India where it didn't have a control group, but they did um, yoga, meditation, and play therapy, and 85% of the kids in it, their ADHD improved a lot. And finally, there's a book, a very interesting book called Nature Deficit Disorder, Last Child in the Woods, which talks about nature deficit disorder, that it looks like kids with ADHD really are, do better. Like if they took a walk, same 20-minute walk in a park, a neighborhood, or downtown, that they could concentrate better if that walk was in a park. So getting the child out in nature might be really helpful. So how do I treat ADHD? I clean up the diet, elimination diets, look at those minerals I talked to you about, fish oil, look at behavioral interventions, school modifications, sometimes herbs or other complementary alternative medicine treatments, look at lifestyle, and when it's necessary, use psychostimulant medications. So I think, here's the take-home message. I think we need to be really careful not to overdiagnose ADHD and to allow for a kind of many normal variations of learning styles and abilities. And when we do make the diagnosis, I think it really makes sense to explore natural non-pharmaceutical options which are definitely safe, which may be effective before moving to psychostimulants. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, questions? Yeah. So I have an eight-year-old child who's hearing impaired and is also labeled as distractible. She's not at this point yet and we're already doing many of these things. But one of my questions is, one of the things the school often gives you as a parent are these computerized learning programs, Lexia Learning, Mass Kids, IXL, and I'm wondering how, if you think it's okay to use those on a you know 20-minute basis per day, or is that only adding to the noise and jitter stuff that's um, no, I think those things are okay to use because they don't have that same kind of craziness a lot of video games have. Though I will say that most of those computerized learning programs don't have a lot of research that they're effective. These are getting very big online. You know, if you go online, you can see all these like advertisements for this kind of program, that kind of program that's going to make your child focus, et cetera, et cetera. But the research behind proving that those actually work is not there.
But I think short amounts of them are okay. Yeah. Hi, I want to know if there's a close connection between the ADHD, ADD, and the executive functioning impairment. Okay, so people with, so the question is, what does ADHD and executive functioning problems have to do with each other? Kids who have ADHD do have a problem with executive functioning, okay? Executive functioning means the part of the brain that sort of runs everything. It tells you when to stop, when to start, where to focus. And basically, by definition, if you have ADHD, you have problems with executive functioning. Other questions? Yeah. Superb presentation from my perspective. Thank you. Uh, and the question I have is about diet because it's interesting that if you look at the U.S. diet, it's totally changed after World War II. That's right. And if you look at before World War II, where almost any immigrant community, where usually ADHD tends to be lower historically, as I can understand that, is that they often ate other foods, including blood, organ meats, etc., which would automatically supply many of your of the additive. Well, much lower on the Great. I mean, I, we, we have changed dramatically. Um, I don't know um, how many of you read uh, any of Michael Pollan's books. He, yeah, so he's a great nutritionist. I highly recommend The Omnivore's Dilemma. But one of the things he said when giving advice is, how do you, how do you figure out all this nutritional advice? What do you do? I mean, you're being told high carbs, low carbs, no carbs, high protein, this, that, the other, and every... Whoops! Every like every like year it changes, you know. And they tell you the opposite of what they told you last year. What he says is, eat food, mostly plants, not too much. <laughs> I mean, well, eat food. Don't aren't we always eating food? No, we're not eating food. We're eating processed stuff that used to be food in some percentage, and that's what happens. In answer to your question, when after World War II, when we stopped actually eating just real food. The other thing he says that's real funny is never eat anything your grandmother wouldn't recognize as food. And I would say somebody's grandmother wouldn't recognize as food, at least. So I think it's a big issue. Yeah, back. Um, in the study that was looking at um, ferritin and zinc and omega-3 um, and found the lower levels in the yeah. ADHD kids, was that, were you measuring it on ADHD kids that are on medication? No, they were not measured with ADHD kids on medication. It's a very good question. She was asking if these were kids on medication, and that's why. No, these kids were not on medication at the time of these studies. Yeah? So um, at one point you said you replaced the, you gave the omega-3 with zinc and magnesium, but not the iron. So at what point do you give... That was, a, that, that was a, just a study they did in Europe. It wasn't what I do. I mean, with me, I think it's very important with iron. You check the iron level, the ferritin level, and then you replace if it needs it. You have to be careful with iron. You can't just give too much. Some kids have something called hemochromatosis, and you could have uh, like um, dangerous levels of iron happen. So it's something that you need a doctor to work with you with. I mean, you can take the amount of iron that's in a multivitamin, but more than that, you have to do it. Yeah, back there. Uh, yes, I have a question. Do you know of any effects of uh, ADHD medications on growth or height? Yes, definitely. On, on average, if kids take medications over a number of years, on average, they may be about an inch shorter. Just one inch? One inch, yeah, on the average. Yeah. Do you have any specific recommendations about the video games with a kid that's already highly addicted? 
yeah, cut them down. <laughs> I mean, I have more parents tell me that video games not only take a lot of time, but their kids are worse when they're on them. I mean, it literally changes the rest of their life. But it's, um, you know, you, I can't say in this day and age, say no video games. It's just not a realistic for most families, it just doesn't seem realistic. But um, I would, I would have, I would limit them, and I'd also make the child earn them. That's part of the nurtured heart approach I was telling you about. They have to earn by their positive behavior, their privileges. And one of the biggest privileges in a child's life these days is video game time. So I would use it as a reinforcement, but not have the attitude of oh, you automatically get it two hours a day or something. Yeah. You really are changing the model in the sense that pharmaceutical industry has represented this in terms of what to do yeah. and causality. The challenge I see is that to do that, you have to rechange the parents' belief structure and you have to teach them a series of skills, whether it's cooking, eating, and other behaviors. That takes a lot of time, and I don't see the 15 minutes visit doing that easily. No, it doesn't. I mean, I'm very fortunate. I work at Osher Center for Integrative Medicine where I get these kind of hour visits. 40-minute follow-ups where I can, I can do this kind of thing. Um, it's a very difficult, and I don't mean to uh, criticize pediatricians because they're stuck. You know, They may be working in an HMO or a big office practice, and they don't have the time to teach parents and to work with them. But I think it's something we have to change as a society uh, before we end up with 40% of our children on medication instead of 20 or 10. Yeah? You kind of took the words out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. But she's functioning well, she's in school, she has no physical disabilities. So what do I do to start the process? Well, you have to find a doctor who has uh, an integrative approach. Uh, some, somebody will take the time to really look at this kind of more holistic approach. Yeah. There's been a recent study showing that early childhood trauma of, of uh, psychiatric nature increases the risk of ADHD. Is that what you're talking about, or you're talking about physical trauma? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's actually just something came out recently showing that this increased the odds of ADHD. Yeah. Um, gosh, I don't know how to do that. Um, uh, why don't you write... Osher, where you signed up, and we'll see if we can figure something out. Thanks. I think we could post them on Osher's website. All right, thanks. Yes, up there. You know, it's, it's, um, it's 12 after, so I'm going to take a couple more questions and then let everybody go, and I, I'll hang around a little bit. Yeah. The study with um, the 579 kids, that short-term, they looked better, but then 36 months later, they were, you said this, there was no difference? Yeah. Is there then a recommendation that no, I mean, a lot of people are taking the position that if these kids were just more carefully 
adjusted on their meds, they would still be better, which could possibly be true, but I don't know. Um, but no, nobody is putting a limit on it at all. Yeah. yeah, I have a related question. So are there individuals who actually uh, long-term still have a good like, a, um, uh, response to the medication? Oh, yeah, yeah, this was an average. I mean, when I say that on the average, these kids who took medicine or didn't take medicine came out the same, which means some of the kids did great. And there are kids who do great long-term on these medications. Yeah. Yeah. How prevalent is this diagnosis in the adult population? And is it something that gets better as you become older? Good question. So the current, different studies show different things. It looks like 30 to 50% of kids who have ADHD go on to have ADHD as adults. And um, it's now becoming incredible. The, the amount of medications prescribed to adults is skyrocketing. Yeah, up there. Hi, I, my name is Jessica Littman. I'm a child neurologist here. This huh. talk was fantastic. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Um, a question and a comment. Um, so one thing that I see a lot of kids that are from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, and I wholeheartedly agree with all the things you're saying about nutrition and diet, but that becomes really difficult to try and tell them to buy organic when their children are getting, how do you... Oh, yeah, so that's, that's a tremendous question. How do you deal with kids who are low on the socioeconomic ladder who, where the parents don't have the resources to implement a whole, you know, kind of these alternative approaches? And they may not have the financial resources, they may not have the time resources, the emotional resources. Being at, at uh, um, UCSF, we take Medi-Cal in my practice, and I have patients like that. And it's hard. And I have to tell you that more of those kids end up on medication than I would like. But I also think that I wouldn't underestimate the capacity of some of these families to do stuff, even if it's just illuminating the soda and changing from cocoa puffs and you know colored cereal to, to raisin bran in the morning, or even going, uh, you know, going to Walmart and buying organic salad and, you know, a huge ton bag. I, I think they really do have capacity to, to do some things, and, yeah, you can run into a wall with that. And that's where I think as a society we need to change what we do and, and you know, and change children's television programming so we're not, you know, we're not advertising horrible foods to them for years and years and change the way we, you know, we, we promote video games, et cetera, et cetera. Right, thank you. I, I agree. Sleep is huge, and it's not just sleep apnea. You know, many of these kids play video games until the minute the light goes off, and, you know, they, you can't go to sleep. If any of you ever watched, you know, an exciting basketball game until 11 o'clock at night, and then you try and turn off the light and go to sleep, well, you can't. You can't. That's not how we were made to go to sleep. So working on that can be very helpful. All right, I think I'll call it now, and I'll hang around a little bit. Thanks again. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.